hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 12:11 through 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time. I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burn you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Thanks, Cynthia. Good morning. In this... uh, Marvelous little book, Out of a Far Country. It's by Christopher and Angela Ewan. They tell the amazing story of a rebellious son and his broken-hearted mother. They alternate chapters telling the story. And it's an amazing story of how God worked to bring both of them to himself. When Christopher told his mother that he was gay... This was her response. I couldn't get off the dining room floor. The crushing weight of Christopher's declaration and his emotionless departure left me feeling cold and lifeless. No discussion, no compromise, just the slamming of a door that seemed to say goodbye forever. Receiving news of his death would have been easier to accept than all of this. I was overwhelmed by the reality that my son was gay and didn't want to change. Our family was broken and my life was falling apart. Every dream I'd had for years for my marriage, for my sons, for my future was gone. I could see no more reason to live. I was certain that I'd have no satisfaction or happiness in this world. I only saw sadness, disappointment, and rejection 
and I wanted no more of it. I slowly pulled myself off the floor and went to the bedroom where I sobbed until dawn. I was at the intersection of life and death. Death's road seemed less painful, so it was the one I chose. I would end this misery that had started so long ago. Suicide seemed the best option to her, to deal with the pain of a prodigal son that was rejecting her. Many of us have had or do have loved ones who are running away from God or not responding well to him and it tears at our souls. We struggle with how to respond. How do we keep loving this person who's a rebel? Or should we just cut off relationship? What do we do with someone who won't listen? Many of us who are parents have struggled with this, but it could be a prodigal parent a prodigal friend, anyone in our lives that we love who is not making good choices. Now, there aren't easy answers, are there, to this kind of dilemma? How do you love someone who's a prodigal, who's going their own way? But I think our passage today, as Paul seeks to love this church, this prodigal church of Corinth, will help us to think through together what it means to pursue with love those who are not listening to us or to God. Paul's dealing with the Corinthians who keep going their own way, making their own choices. They're a rebellious church that just simply wasn't growing. In fact, the church really was pretty much a mess. (laughs) As one commentator put it, There was not another church founded by Paul, as far as we know, that was so plagued by sin and division. Now, we may not have a prodigal church that we're overseeing in our lives, but we do have people in our lives who are making choices. And I think as we look at how Paul responds to the Corinthian church, it will help us understand how we can respond to the prodigals in our lives like God does with us. Pray with me. Lord, at heart, each of us are rebels. If we're not living out rebellion, the only reason is your grace in our lives. And you clearly love rebels. You died for us. So teach us to love the rebels in our lives as you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remind ourselves of the big picture of this Corinthian church because we've studied through the book of 1 Corinthians and now we're at the very end almost of 2 Corinthians. And let's remind ourselves of what's gone on in this church In Acts 18, we're told the story of how Paul came to Corinth and as he arrived there, he began to teach the church. First he was a tent maker and then he was freed up to minister full time. And as he ministered full time in that church, he poured out his life. It says he stayed at least a year and a half, maybe close to two years there, establishing that church. 
When he left, he kept hearing about problems, so he wrote a letter. It's mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. So, as we've said before, 1 Corinthians is really the second letter Paul wrote to Corinth. He made another visit to them, dealing with some of the problems there. He wrote a third letter called the severe letter that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians, which is really the fourth letter that we know that Paul wrote to Corinth. So you think about this. Two visits, four letters, deep concern. The third letter was a severe letter. He confronted them about some issues. Their relationship was stormy, to say the least. (laughs) It was rocky. As you recall, 1 Corinthians dealt with a number of problems from gossip to divisions, choosing sides. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. They were divided. 1 Corinthians dealt with sexual immorality, dealt with suing each other in court, misuse of spiritual gifts, (laughs) more conflicts, on and on. I mean, that's just 1 Corinthians. It was a mess. In fact, what Paul says about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, are, uh, uh, tells us a lot about them. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul says, you're a bunch of babies. You ought to be growing up. And here you are fighting amongst each other. What a mess you guys are. He's struggling with them. And now we come to the end of 2 Corinthians and we see that things aren't much, if any, better. They're still choosing sides. They're still divided. Now there's these super apostles who have come in and were teaching falsely and they were buying into a lot of the junk they were being taught. They were critical of Paul who had been a spiritual father to them. They were still not growing as they should. They were still infants in Christ. And now in these last two sections of the book, today and next week, we'll see as Paul wraps up his letter that his concern for them is great and his passion for them comes through in this last section because he so longs for them to be doing well, but they are struggling. And we get to see how he deals with their problems. And a summary would be two words just to remind us of the big picture, and that is love and truth. When you're dealing with prodigals, whether it's a prodigal church or a prodigal child or a prodigal parent or whatever the prodigals are in our lives. To find a balance between love and truth is the challenge, isn't it? To figure out how to keep them right. And that, I think, is laid out pretty well in this passage as we see Paul dealing with this prodigal church. So I want to just highlight some things we see about his response. First, he appeals to their history together. The first few verses, he appeals to their history Together, he begins this way in verse 11. I've been a fool. You forced me into it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am 
nothing. Paul is appealing to the fact that they've walked together for a long time. In that verse, in the next couple of verses, he says, You know me, Corinthians. We've walked together for years. We've been through a lot. You know my heart. I know your heart. He says, yeah, I'm nothing. Now, when he says that, he's probably quoting the super apostles, right? Ah, Paul, he's nothing. He's not as good as we are. He doesn't earn as much money. He doesn't whatever. He doesn't drive the big chariot, you know, whatever. And so they were probably saying he's nothing. And Paul kind of takes that on and he almost wears it like a badge. Yes, I am nothing. Christ is everything. I'm nothing is essentially his attitude here. But though I'm nothing, I'm showing you that I'm a true apostle. He goes on to say that as he says, I'm not inferior to them. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. I've shown you the signs of an apostle. God's power was in me. But there's a word that kind of jumps out at me there. He says, I've shown you with all patience, with perseverance. In other words, what he's saying to the Corinthians is he's saying, look, I've stuck by you for a long time. There's been consistency in our relationship. There's been consistency in my life as I've been an apostle to you, one who established you. There's a long history of you seeing the faithfulness of God working through me on your behalf. And he says, you ought to, come, you ought to be the ones to commend me, he says. I ought to have been commended by you. That word means to stand Beside, stand with. Corinthians, you shouldn't be criticizing me. You should be standing beside me in the face of our critics. Paul is appealing to their long history and the perseverance of their relationship over the years and how he has continued to love them. And he says, you should have stood by me given the consistency of our relationship over the years. And then he says, and so I favored you by being the only church of all the churches that I served that I didn't take money from to support me. He's the only one. It says in Acts 18 that he showed up in Corinth and he was a tent maker. He worked for a while, got to know Aquila and Priscilla, and they worked as tent makers. And then it says when Silas and Timothy showed up from Philippi, they brought financial support for Paul so that he could serve full-time in the church in Corinth. He felt like it was best that he not take money from them, but he just give away his life to serve the Corinthians. And so he says, forgive me this wrong. (laughs) Rather sarcastic, I think. But essentially what he's saying is, look at our history. Look at how I've loved you. Look how there's been perseverance and commitment over the years to love you well. Paul appeals to the history of their relationship to really remind them of their trust in their relationship. I think this is important as we think about how to love a prodigal in our lives. Do you have a relationship that you can appeal to and say, look how I've loved you over the years. Look at our commitment together. Now, we need to be careful we don't use this to manipulate with something like, look at all I've done for you. And you treat me like this. 
Okay, that's not what Paul's talking about here. But it is right and reasonable to say, let's look at the history of our relationship and how I've loved you. Would I I try to lead you astray? Uh, I've loved you well. We've been committed. We've persevered together. Look how God has worked in the history of our relationship. That's really the bottom line. And I think it's good at times to point that out to the prodigals, to appeal to the history of your relationship. Because often... Rebellion is more relational than it is moral or intellectual or for some other reason. So he begins there. Then he expresses his love for them in verses 14 through 16. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I won't be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says... I want to come again. I want to come visit you, but I want it to be different this time. And I don't want your money. That's essentially what he's saying. I don't want your money. Now, Paul was being criticized still about the fact he didn't take money, but now he's sending Titus to ask for money for the offering for the Jerusalem church. Remember, they were going through a famine and through a difficult time. And so Paul encourages them in chapters 8 and 9. We studied through that not long ago. He's saying, collect money and give it to the church in Jerusalem. Now he's being criticized that, oh, maybe he really wants it for himself or he's going to misuse it or something like that. And he says, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. It's not for me. What I want is you. What I want is our relationship to be right. I want to be healed in our relationship. You know that, that passion you feel with your prodigal where you long for a healed relationship. And that's what Paul's appealing to. He's expressing his love for them. And then he goes on. Beautiful, beautiful verses where he says, verse 15, I would most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? I only want to give. I, I want to give my life to you. I want us to connect in a deep way. He's expressing his love. And I, I love you. I agape you. I, I have a love for you where I, I'm willing to give up my life in this beautiful description of I would rather spend all I have. I'd rather give it away. I don't want anything from you. I want to give to you. And I would rather be spent for you. The word he uses there is one that's used of the woman who Jesus meets as he's going to heal Jairus' daughter and he meets this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years and, and it says, describes her and it says she spent all she had on doctors. It's also used the same word of the prodigal son in the actual prodigal son story where it says he went to a far country and he spent everything. Paul may actually be thinking of that story as he uses the word here. He may be taking that story in mind and thinking, you Corinthians have gone far away, but I'm willing to spend myself completely for your sake. To give up whatever it needs to be given up to bring you home. And in 16 he says, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. 
What's he talking about there? Uh, Apparently he was being, again, criticized about the money that he didn't take, that somehow he he didn't take any money from them so that they would feel obligated later to give him more. Like he was trying to deceive them and manipulate them. And he says, come on, you know me better than that. I'm committed to love you. Do you really think I was trying to manipulate you? That's crazy. You know me. You know my love for you. So Paul expresses his love for the Corinthians, even though they've been rebellious and critical of him. He's received a lot of criticism from them. And God calls us to do the same, to keep expressing our love to the prodigals in our lives. We are to keep loving, not give way to resentment or anger at the way they've treated us or the way they've treated the Lord. Again, Angela Yuan, the mother in this story, eventually came to Christ rather than taking her life. God, in a miraculous way, prevented her at the last moment from taking her life. She gave her life to Jesus, and she was trying to find a way to keep loving her son who was continuing to rebel describes this way. A couple of years earlier, I had decided to send him cards several times a week so that he would know we still thought about him and hadn't forgotten him. If he won't answer our phone calls, I thought he can still receive cards. I figured I could at least plant seeds. So I would buy a stack of Christian greeting cards, and during my prayer times, I would often write a note to Christopher telling him I had been praying for him. Sometimes I would share a passage of Scripture that meant something to me. And at the bottom of each card, I signed it, Love you forever, Mom. I wanted to be the extension of God's love to Christopher. And I wanted him to know that our door would always be open to him, no matter what he did or what might happen. See, she's doing all she can to continue to reach out and express love. I think that's important with our prodigals, that they know that we love them and that we continue to reach out to them. Now, I know sometimes we think, but, but if I say I love my prodigal and act loving, won't I be enabling their behavior? Good question. And might they think that I'm condoning what they're doing? Well, I think that, again, is a good question. It's tough. But think about how God keeps pursuing us in our rebellion. He never quits demonstrating love to us and protecting us and blessing us and giving us air to breathe and giving us our basic needs and reaching out with love and care to us constantly, even in our rebellion. And so somehow we need to find ways to try to do that. Now as the story goes on, it turns out Christopher was taking those cards of his mother's and throwing them in the garbage without even reading them, at least often. But she kept expressing it. He saw that she was mailing this to him. And he knew basically what was in them. (laughs) He knew. So God keeps pursuing us, and we need to reflect God's heart to the prodigals in our lives. That heart of loving even the rebellious. Why is this so important? It's vital. I had to reseed part of our lawn this last week in the bare areas, and I had to dig it up, plow it up a little bit so that the seeds could penetrate and find a place where they could begin to grow. 
Otherwise, they would hit the hard ground and they would simply be blown away and they would not take root. You see, expressing love, this context, this environment of love that we give our prodigals where they know that we love them no matter what, the way God loves us, provides the soil, the environment where repentance can begin to take root. So that the truth can begin to penetrate. If we are hard and angry and cold, then we're like hard ground where nothing can penetrate. And and, and we need to provide that environment of love, expressing love, where repentance can take root and begin to grow. Now, I know that's hard. It's costly. It's painful. But it's what Paul does with the Corinthians. It's what God does with us. Keep expressing your love for your prodigal. And then seek for others to be involved in their lives. In the next couple of verses, Paul reminds them of Titus and another brother that he sent. He says this in 17 and 18. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him unnamed brother, we don't know who it was, but he sent both of them. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul sent others to this prodigal church, Titus and another brother and others as well, but he highlights these two and he says, didn't we have the same heart towards you? And didn't we walk the same way, take the same steps with you? Did any of them take advantage of you? Why would you accuse me of taking advantage of you? I never have and they didn't either. So they were examples to this prodigal church of what Paul was teaching and saying all along. That's just an encouragement, I think, for us, and most of us try to do this anyway, but if we can't reach our prodigals, where you can, get others to reach out to them who they might trust and listen to who have the same hearts, the same lifestyle that you do, in the hopes that they might listen to them. Now, if you can't, pray for God to bring others into their lives. God has an amazing way. He's sovereign. And I've seen it many, many times where maybe a child won't listen to a parent, but God sends a friend who knows Jesus to impact them. So pray for that for your prodigal, where you can't reach them. God is present with your prodigal, even if you can't be. And he can bring someone along who can speak to them when you can't. And now a very important principle, I think, as we continue thinking about this, and that is watch your own heart. Watch your own heart. I like the way Paul expresses it in 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul says, do you really think this is about us? It's not. Essentially, he's saying I've searched my own heart and I, I do what I do in my relationship with you, O Corinthians, in the sight of God. For Christ, before Him, in, in His sight. It, everything I do is, is 
laid open before God. I, I do what I can to make sure that what I do is what God wants me to do. The truth is, all that I've done, my four letters, my two visits, sending others, all my prayer is for your building up, he says. It really is for your sake because I long for you to be walking with God and not living with these divisions and this foolishness that's tearing you apart. It's all for you. I think that so often when we're dealing with a prodigal, it's too often about us. We can't stand our own children to be walking away from God because it's embarrassing for us. <laughs> so I think it's so important we check our own hearts and make sure that what we're doing is really for their sake and not for our sake. That we really are doing it to make them look good rather than, and for them to know God, rather than for us to somehow look good. Or we can be like Angela Ewan, who, as she considered suicide and planned to take her own life, because she, her whole life was wrapped up in how her son was doing. Her identity was tied in way too much with her child. And God had to speak to her about that and she had to realize she had to give him fully over to God. And that's what we have to do with our prodigals. We have to wrestle with that, check our own hearts. So often what God wants to do isn't even as much in our prodigals' hearts as in ours. So it's so important that we let God speak to our own souls and our own hearts in the midst of the struggles we have with our prodigals. So that's the challenge. Check your own motives. Check your own heart. Are you really concerned for the prodigal's sake or for your own. Believe me, if it's about you, your prodigal will know. And your prodigal will feel that pressure and that manipulation and will want to walk away from it. It won't help. Your trust really must be in Jesus and not in you. Again, Angela Ewan, in, as her son now, has not only declared that he's gay, but he's walked away from his family, he's walked away from everyone and he is doing drugs now. He's living a gay lifestyle. He ends up getting arrested. He's in prison. And they're talking to each other through the glass for the first time while he's in prison. And she says, can I pray for you? And he's like, sure. Here's what she prayed with him. But you hear her heart in this of really wanting her heart to be right and wanting to leave Christopher in God's hands. She says, Dear Lord, you are Christopher's constant companion. There is no need that you cannot fulfill, whether your course for Christopher points to the mountaintop of glorious delight or the valleys of human suffering. You are by Christopher's side. You are ever-present with Christopher. You are close beside Christopher. When Christopher treads the dark streets of danger, and even when Christopher flirts with death itself, you are there to lean on. When the pain is severe, you are near to comfort. When the burden is heavy, you are there to lean upon. When depression darkens Christopher's soul, you touch him with eternal hope and joy. And when Christopher feels empty and alone and isolated, you fill the aching vacuum with your power. Christopher's security, O oh Lord, is in your promise to be near to him always and in the knowledge that you will never let him go. Check your own heart. 
Are you leaving your prodigal in God's hands and looking for him to work or trying to make it happen according to your own desires? And then finally, the last principle I see here of Paul is he keeps speaking the truth. He keeps speaking the truth. In verse 20, he says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Notice all those words have to do with relationships with one another. And they'd been the history of the church in Corinth. They'd had all this gossip and slander and disorder, disagreement, these battles in relationship. And Paul's laying out his heart here and says, I'm so afraid that when I come back to you that you're going to be dealing with the same stuff. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. The immorality, he's afraid, is still going to be there. So he reminds them of the truth of he's taught them over these two letters and his visits and his other two letters. And he's saying, all that I've taught you, I'm just so afraid you haven't listened. But notice what he's doing. He's reminding them of the truth that he's taught them over the last several years. I think we need to keep speaking truth to our prodigals. I'm afraid we'll be disappointed in each other, Paul says. I don't want that. But he reminds them of the unrepented sin. So he says, please deal with it. As you know, with your prodigals, you just, though you keep reaching out in love, you just can't pretend like, Everything's okay. That would be enabling them. We still need to, in the context of love and care, to speak truth. Don't harp on their sin, but appeal to the fact that you long for a healthy relationship with them. That's what Paul's doing. I long for a healthy relationship, and the sin in your life is blocking our ability to love each other. That's a good thing to say to a prodigal at some point. Again, not harping on it over and over, but we need to be able to say that. The sin in your life is, I I long for a good relationship, but that is blocking our love for each other. You can't ignore sin. You can't pretend. But at some point, you do need to speak truth. And they may reject you if you do. Because what they want is to be fully accepted in their sin if they're in rebellion. They may reject you. They probably will. But if you've been speaking the truth in the context of love, those two things, truth and love, then God can use you to plow the ground to soften the heart of your prodigal so that at some point God can work to set them free. Angela Ewan experienced all this from her son. Here's how he responded when she first began to try to speak truth to him and give him a Bible. He says, are you serious? I don't want your stupid Bible. I don't even want you to think that I might read it, Christopher yelled. I don't want your religion. I don't want your Bible. I don't want you here. Just leave. Get out. And if you ever, ever bring up God or the Bible, you will never see me again. But after God began to humble him and put him in prison, 
he began to long for them to talk about Jesus. He turned to them when he was needy and hurting, when he was in a far country and lost. And God opened the door and he eventually came to Christ in a marvelous picture, marvelous story where he's in prison and he looks in the garbage and there's a Gideon New Testament. And he said, well, I might as well read that. Took it out of the garbage, began to read it in the Gospel of Mark. Through that came to Christ, even though later he was diagnosed with HIV. He's inflicted with that today. But when he got out of prison after three years, which was pretty miraculous because he'd received a far longer sentence than that, he went to seminary. He now travels with his mom and they speak about their history and he teaches at Moody Bible Institute. Raises the question of what, what happens to our prodigals in the long run. For example, what happened to the church at Corinth? after all Paul's efforts to reach them. Well, it's interesting. The the earliest, oldest Christian document we have outside the Bible is a letter from the Bishop of Rome to the church at Corinth by Clement, the first epistle of Clement, written about 95 A.D., about the same time as the book of Revelation was written by John. Fascinating. I was reading this letter of Clement and He's writing, and guess what he writes about? They're fighting. And the letter is, I praise you for certain things, but, but why are you fighting? Why are you continuing to uh, complain about leadership? And there's all this division going on in the church. They're choosing different leaders. There's conflict. And he said, hey, this is worse. He literally says this. This is worse than what Paul wrote to you. Forty years before. Because you're still dealing with the same stuff. There are no guarantees that our prodigals will ever respond, are there? But if we will trust God and respond in love and truth, wrestle, seek God, pray, leave our prodigal in his hands and keep trusting him, and provide that environment of love and truth, God can use that to plow the hearts, the soil of our prodigal's lives so that truth and eventually repentance can, Lord willing, take root. Let's pray. Lord, as we wrestle with how to love those that are walking away from you, we Recognize we have to deal with our own hearts first. We desperately need your grace, as they do. May we trust you to find a balance of love and truth that you might use, Lord, to accomplish your will, whatever it is, in our hearts first and in theirs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.